truth that he would be our teacher tonight. And Lord, that, that he would write these words upon the tablets of our hearts. Lord, that even as this is a praise of psalms, then in the, uh, a, a praise, uh, uh, or song, a psalm of praise, excuse me, it's a psalm of praise uh, uh, that we would sing in the midst of going through trials, in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of, of dangers. Lord, have your way in our hearts. Lead us into your truth, and God, be glorified during this time in our hearts and as a result of this time with you. And we ask that, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You guys may be seated. Last week, we looked at Psalm 56, uh, which was a psalm that dealt with fears in the midst of trials. And tonight, similarly, it's, it is a psalm or a prayer in the midst of perils. And we, we see that this psalm is basically divided in two halves. And we see in verse 5 and verse 11, basically the same exact words. They are the same exact words. And so the end of that marks the end of each particular half. So verses 1 through 5, first half, and then verses 6 through 11, the second half. We see that in the inscription that is, is, set to, uh, is written to the chief musician, as so many of these psalms are uh, inscribed to the chief musician, uh, which would mean, of course, that it, it, it is to be delivered to the person who is going to be leading worship during this particular worship time. Now, uh, if this psalm had been delivered to us tonight by King David, then it would have been handed to Chris so that he could lead us in worship with this particular psalm, right? The, because Chris is our chief musician tonight, right? That, that's the idea behind that. But as I've shared with you before, uh, there are some who would who would say that, well, in reality, the chief musician is God himself. He is the one who leads us in praises. And while that is true, I think on a practical level, it would be given to the person who basically is in charge of the music during that particular worship time. Uh, it says, set to, and then in quotes, do not destroy. And, and, and there are some who take it to mean that this psalm is to be sung to a, another song that is understood, uh, that song being called Do Not Destroy. And yet, the words set to are not really in the inscription. It just says, do not destroy. And some would assume that's the case, that it should be sung to that particular song. On the other hand, this idea of do not destroy could be from David's heart, just that that's that's the idea in his heart as he writes this particular song, uh, a psalm. Um, and it could very well be a reference to David's heart as expressed when he was in that cave and he refused to kill King Saul. In 1 Samuel chapter 24, you might turn in your Bibles there, the these words are going to be on the screen here, the first seven verses of 1 Samuel 24. And we're going to read those together. 
Now, this is at a time, of course, when Saul was chasing after King David. Uh, King David was uh, running from King Saul for a period of about 10 years before King Saul and Jonathan are killed. And that we see that at the very end of 1 Samuel. But in these first seven verses, and I want you to have your Bibles open because after verse 7, and we see some very dramatic things taking place in a conversation between David and King Saul. We just don't have time to go there, but I do want you to look at those verses later because I think it's very cool what we see taking place there. But here in verses 1 through 7 in 1 Samuel 24. Now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. I want to pause there just for a moment. Those of you who have been with us to Israel have been to the wilderness of Engedi. You know, and it's just a, it's a trippy place because while it's a wilderness, of in, they're called Engedi. I mean, it, it's there in the middle of the desert, right there uh, to, the, to the west of the Dead Sea, uh, hot. You, you, we drive up to the parking lot, begin to walk up, and, and th- it's a very rocky terrain, you know, trails going up, but there are pools and waterfalls, and it's just a beautiful place. You know, you can see why David would want to be there in En Gedi. And there are caves everywhere, caves everywhere. And uh, as we see that this psalm is written when David fled from Saul into the cave, it certainly could have been there while David was in En Gedi. Verse 2, Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. Why is it called the rocks of the wild goats? Because as you're approaching it, you see wild goats on the rocks. You you do. They're they're there. They're still there today. Not the same ones. But there are wild goats on those rocks as you approach this oasis within this desert. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave. And Saul went in to attend to his needs. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Then the men of David said to him, This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. The the following verses describe this this encounter between David and King Saul. Uh, David cries out to Saul, shows him that he's got this piece of his, his uh, robe. He looks at his robe and sure, surely it's missing. Da- uh, David is called by a King Saul a better man, a more righteous man than, than he and so forth. And, and uh, 
the way it's all worded, King, King Saul comes to a place of finally understanding that David is a good man and that he ought not to be chasing him, but he doesn't stop. He doesn't stop chasing him. So it's just one of those things, but it's a, it's a very interesting and enlightening encounter between the two following these, wor- uh, fo- following these first seven verses. And I do encourage you uh, to take a look at it later. Uh, but this is a very powerful display of David's trust in God. He himself was not going to take it upon himself to be free from this pursuit of King Saul after him. He's going to leave that to the Lord. Going to leave that in the Lord's hands. Allow the Lord to say, it's time. He wasn't going to do it on his own. His men were upset that he wasn't going to do it. In fact, David prayed and the the, 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 uh, the men did not agree with him, but they, they, they did uh, submit to his leadership in this. Now, now there was a, there's a previous passage in 1 Samuel chapter 22 when we see that David is in the cave of Adullam, and there's no event that takes place there, just simply that he's in that cave. While he's in the cave, his family comes and ministers to him, and then, they, then he takes his family uh, uh, away from that cave. And so whether it's in chapter 22, here in chapter 24 of 1 Samuel, when this event took place, we don't know for certain. We do know that it is at a time when David, fleeing from King Saul, went into a cave. Um, I like to think it's that, that one in, first in chapter 24, but we simply cannot say for sure. But this psalm was written around the time of one of those passages, certainly. And this is what David writes. He writes, Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For my soul trusts in you. And in the shadow of your wings, I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed by. Now, now can't we see David perhaps writing this psalm immediately after that event that we just read about in 1 Samuel 24, after David had this opportunity to take King Saul's life, and he simply cut off the, the, the corner of his robe to let Saul know that he had been given into David's hand, and David did nothing. And then David cries out, be merciful to me. O Lord, be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you. As I stated, this is a wonderful passage, a wonderful display of David showing uh, trust in his God. And so I I, I think it it really does... uh, um, match that particular passage in 1 Samuel 24. But as David cries out, twice he he says, be merciful to me. Oh God, he says, be merciful to me again a second time. For, uh, For emphasis, of course, because David knows and understands he needs the mercy of God. 
Do you guys understand that you need God's mercy? I pray that we do, that every one of us, as followers of the Lord, understand that we need His mercy on a daily basis. Now, the psalmist who wrote Psalm 103, it's not uh, given to anyone. There's an inscription that doesn't say a name. But in Psalm 103, verses 11 to 14, we, we see uh, some powerful words in regards to the expanse of God's mercy. Those words read this way. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far He has removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear Him, for He knows our frame and remembers that we are dust. He understands what we're like. He understands what we need. He understands what we need. And Psalm 103.11 tells us that as for as the heavens are high above the earth. Now, we repeat this whenever we come to a passage like this, the same as uh, um, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, which speaks about as high as the heavens are above the earth, so his ways and his thoughts are above ours. Well, here, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his mercies toward us. And when we consider this, the psalmist or Isaiah writing for as high as the heavens are above the earth, they had no clue in terms of how high that really is. And neither do we really, but we have a better understanding than they did. I mean, we're, we're sending rockets into outer space. We're, we're sending spacecraft to, 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 to various planets. I mean, we're talking about a, a settlement on Mars, you know. I mean, th those are things that we want to do. And, and, and we have sent, uh, we, we have uh, telescopes, a Hubble telescope, for example, which will look uh, um, millions of light years out into the universe. We have some understanding of how far the universe reaches, but it's limited because as great as our technology is, it is limited as well. That telescope will only reach so far. And there's a universe past that. As far as the Hubble telescope can see, God's mercy toward us is even greater than that. Imagine that, guys. Imagine that. Now, I mean, that, that's, be, that's really beyond our understanding because no human being can understand how far that really is, which means that no human being can really understand how great God's mercy is toward those who fear Him. Isn't that incredible? Think about the mercy that God has towards you. Think about how great that mercy is that He shows you and me. It's incredible, isn't it? It's a, I mean, it's a crazy thought. 
But it's like, man, Lord, that much mercy is available to me? Wow. Does that blow your mind? Blows mine. I mean, we, we just cannot imagine how merciful God truly is. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. And then the psalmist there in, one, one, in Psalm 103 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. You know, and the, and the reason why that is so impactful is if you had wet east, you are always going to be going east. Now, you might travel around the world, but you're still going east. You will not stop going east. You never stop going east. And the same, if you go west, you never stop going west. That's how far our sins are removed from us. That's a display of God's mercy, his forgiveness, that he has forgiven us of our sins, removed our transgressions from us that far. Because God, as our Father, just like our human fathers, and we who are human fathers, we have pity toward our children. He has pity for us. He understands what we are. He understands that physically speaking, we're just nothing but a lump of clay. Just dust. He understands our weaknesses. And so... Because of those weaknesses, he has this abound, abounding and ever-growing mercy toward each one of us. And David cries out, out of your storehouse, the riches of your mercy, be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, O God. And of course, we know just because we know the history of the Old Testament. We know 1 Samuel, and we know what takes place in 2 Samuel. David becomes king. King Saul dies. Jonathan dies at, die at, the, uh, dies at the end of, of uh, 1 Samuel, and David is then installed king, and he reigns for 40 years. He received God's mercy. He says, because my soul trusts in you, and in the shadow of your wings, I will take my refuge. In the shadow of your wings. David ex proclaims his trust for God as exhibited in what he did with King Saul in, Saul, in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1, or in, in that passage. Um, but he says, in the shadow of your wings, I will take my refuge. The shadow of your wings. Now, that speaks about how a bird, you know, a, 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 a mother hen, or any female bird who has just laid some eggs and some little birds have hatched from that and they're walking around following their, 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 their mama and, 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 and this mother hen is, is very anxious to, to shelter her, her, her chicks. If there's, a, if there's a thunderstorm like we had around here today that just suddenly drops and they're out for a walk, She'll gather her chicks underneath her wings and protect them from, protect them from the elements. And, and David cries out here. He says, I'm going to make you my refuge under the shadow of your wings, God. Now, he's, not, he's not calling God a hen or 
any kind of a female bird, but in the same way that a bird does that, God does that, and he's going to take his refuge underneath God's shelter that he provides, right? It's interesting that we see something very different in the New Testament, in the sense of very different from David's attitude. David says, I am going to make you my refuge. I am going to take refuge under the shadow of your wings. You remember in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is pronouncing his woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees, those hypocrites, he calls them, right? Seven different times he says, woe unto you. And then he has something that he has to say about them. At the end of it all, as, as he is just roasting these, these Pharisees and scribes, in verse 37 of Matthew 23, we see Jesus saying this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Very colorful there. But even as Jesus, and, and Matthew 23 is, is incredible, as, as, as Jesus rebukes these leaders of the Jews, the Pharisees and, and, and the scribes, he rebukes them, woe unto you, he says. And then here in verse 37, he pours out this lamentation over them. He weeps over them. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He's speaking about these scribes and, and the Pharisees, all the leaders of the Jews, all the people of Jerusalem. He cries out, you know, you, you're, you're the one who kills the prophets that, 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 that are sent to you. And then notice Jesus says, how often I wanted to gather your children together. Jesus, the Son of God, this is not the God the Father. Jesus, the Son of God, says, I wanted to gather you together. All these years throughout your history, I've wanted to gather you together like a hen gathers her children, her, her, her chicks under her wings, but you're not willing. You're not willing. Jesus is looking for our, willing to res our willing response to him. But these scribes and Pharisees were not willing. And because they were not willing, even we see, as we see God's desire to save them and protect them and to shelter them under their wings, they were constantly running out from under those wings through lives of disobedience and in particular in, in, in lives of idolatry. Living lives of idolatry. Not worshiping the God who made them, but worshiping the gods of the, of the nations instead. And so, Jesus proclaims, woe unto you. Woe unto you. Powerful, powerful message. David was willing. Scribes and Pharisees were not willing to place themselves under the shelter of the wings of God, so to speak question for you and for me today is, are we? 
Are we willing to rest under God's protection? As he gives us his words, and we stay there under his protection, following his plan, doing his will, even at times when it doesn't make sense to us. Because, as David says, my soul trusts in you. Does your soul trust in your God? Verse 2, I will cry out to God most high, to God who performs all things for me. God most high. That's a familiar term. It's a familiar phrase to uh, speak of, of God. In the Hebrew, it would be Elohim Elyon or El Elyon, uh, which are translated as God Most High. If it's Lord Most High, it's Jehovah Elyon. But many times we'll see those phrases strewn throughout the, uh, the, the Psalms and, and throughout the Old Testament as well. It's in Genesis as well as a number of other books of the Old Testament. In other words, as David says that he's going to cry out to him who performs all things for me, he's acknowledging that God is the one who does those things for him that he needs. He, he, he performs those, those good deeds, accomplishes those good purposes for him. It's God who does it. Not him, not his own planning, not his own capabilities, not the fact that he's a mighty warrior, not the fact that he slew Goliath, none of these things, but it is God who performs these good things for him. In James 1.17, we see these words. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Just a colorful way of saying he does not change. He does not change. Every good gift, every perfect or every complete gift is from above, comes from God our Father, every one. We know that he, that, that he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike, right? The sun shines on the just and the unjust alike, right? And those who don't know the Lord, those who don't worship him, those who even curse him. They are alive today because of him. They receive the rain. They, re they receive the oxygen into the lungs. Every good thing comes from God. They just don't recognize it. Do we? Do we recognize it? And do we praise him and do we thank him for it? Uh, every good and perfect gift, everyone, and Romans 8.28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Some translations read, and God causes all things to work together. Some uh, translations read that way. And whatever translation it is, that's the meaning of it, that, that things work together because God is doing his work of causing them to be woven together to bring good into our lives, all things. It's just amazing what God does. You know, he, he will use our stubbornness. He'll use our insolence. He'll, he'll use our disobedience to somehow work toward our good. 
That's just amazing what he does. Not that we don't at some level suffer for those disobedient acts, that, that we don't, it's not that we don't suffer consequences, but in the end, it's for our good. Because isn't it true, have, have you found this to be true in your life, like that, that when the Lord disciplines us, when he chastens us, while that chastening is not good, it's just, it's, it's just like Hebrew, Hebrews 12 tells us, that the chastening of the Lord brings righteousness to our lives, causes us to live righteous lives. And that's what we want, right? We'll say, Lord, I want to be like you. Then we commit some act that is a disobedient act, and we, we suffer, and we're saying, Lord, I mean, wh what's going on here? But, but, but he's doing his work to form us into the image of Jesus. Or even if we just suffer not having done anything. But just because we, we, live, we live in a world where there's pain and, and, and there's, there, there's heartache, there's, there's death and there's sickness and all these things, evil and wickedness, right? And we're affected by it. God uses those things to form us into the image of Jesus. Which as we see in verse 29 of Romans 8 is his purpose for us that we will be conformed to his likeness, to the image of Christ. Let's move on, verse 3. He shall sin from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. Selah. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. Here in this third verse, he is saying basically that as he says that God will send from heaven and save me and that God reproaches the one who would swallow me up or be against me, who, who would hound me, follow me like a hound. We saw that term back in the 56th Psalm. It's that mercy and truth that is being sent. David is, is saying that whenever God delivers or rescues us, we who belong to him, by defeating our enemy, in doing so, he is sending forth his mercy and his truth. As the pulpit commentary says, his mercy is being sent to relieve us, or in this case, to relieve David, and his truth is sent to confound the psalmist's enemies. And so his mercy, his mercy and truth will be sent forth. I was going to say his mercy and truth instead of his mercy and truth. <laughs> and then he says, Selah. Think about that. Let's just think about this for a moment, the, uh, David writes. Think about the fact that God sends from heaven to save us, to protect us, to deliver us, to rescue us. He sends from heaven to do that. He's watching you and me. When we find ourselves in trouble, he sends from heaven to deliver us. That's what he does. And he will send forth his mercy and his truth. David basically has this incredible confidence that God is going to help him. Again, let's make that personal. 
do you, do I, do we have this incredible confidence that God's going to help us? Or do we cry out, oh, woe is me. Poor me. And ask God, why are you doing to this, this to me, God? Now there's a level. I mean, even David in some of his psalms, he would say those kinds of things. But might we quickly, like David in the psalms that he wrote, come to the place of just saying, okay, Lord, I know you. I know what you're like. I understand you. I trust you. I worship you. That's always what we see David doing. In Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2, we see these words. I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. It's not a coincidence that those words are added, who made heaven and earth. If your help comes from the Lord, then your help comes from the one who spoke a word and all of the universe was created. The one who caused these stars to exist and created every solar system in the universe, um, every galaxy in the universe. And as far as it expands, he created it, and everything is in perfect working order to this day. He's the one who's your help. Why do we worry? <laughs> Why do we fret? Why do we worry? That's such a, a great question, I think. Verse 4, my soul, we see David here in verse 4, basically uh, um, writing of his enemies. He said, my soul is among the lions. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. So David is speaking about his enemies as, as lions. And he says that my soul is among the lions. Not just, it's not just a physical thing, but, but my very soul is among them. There, there are a lot of emotional things going on with David because of all this. And, and he would write it in such a way that it was even seemed like his soul is in danger somehow. He belonged to the Lord. That was not the case, but that's how deep this was for David. That's how deep it was for him. He speaks of his enemies set on fire. Literally, he's saying, I lie on firebrands. He is in contact lying on firebrands. The, the, these firebrands that have been placed in the coals and they're red hot, ready to, 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 to be bent or, or, or ready to, to, to make some, uh, uh, put something together with, with, with brads or something and metal and steel and iron and so forth. And that's how his situation is. I mean, that's, that's, that's how serious it is. That the, the teeth of his enemies are, are spears and arrows being thrown at me all the time. It, the, the, their tongue is a sharp sword, cutting and cutting deeply. David obviously sees himself as being in extreme danger, but in a very real sense, it's like he's saying, where else can I go? 
Where else can I go? My soul trusts in you. He'd already stated, I'm going to find my refuge under the shadow of your wings. And so I'm going to you. There's no place else that we can go. It reminds us of John chapter 6, when in that chapter Jesus is speaking about being the bread of life and that if, if, if his followers will, will partake of that bread of life, life, eat his flesh and drink his blood, then they will live throughout eternity. You will receive eternal life. And then his followers saying, whoa, what's going on here? This is kind of weird. Eat his flesh and drink his blood? We didn't realize this was some kind of a cult in which people are eating each other. You know, I mean, it's like they they left. It was just too hard. They they couldn't get it. They, They left. So many of his disciples left after that, we're told, in John chapter 6. But in verses 67 through 69 there in that chapter, Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? Are you going to leave too? But, Peter, but, but Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Great answer, Peter. Like Peter saying, you know, I don't get it either. But where am I going to (laughs) go? You're the ones that have the words of life. Where am I going to go? I love what Pastor Chuck used to say. He would say that when we come to a place where we don't understand, spiritual things, something we're reading in the scriptures, a message we're hearing, things that are going on in our lives we don't understand, lean on the things you do understand. Lean on what you do know to be true. We do understand the nature of our God. We understand that He's good. We understand that He is love. We understand that he's gracious and merciful and wise and has all knowledge and all power. And we can continue for a number of minutes talking about what we know about God. But because we do know him, we kind of step back and say, Lord, I trust you. I trust you. This doesn't feel good, but I know that it is good. And I know that you've promised me that you're going to work this through, work this out, along with other things in my life to to bring good things into into my life. It'll work out for good for me. I don't know how you're going to do it, but that's why you're God and I'm not. You do know how to do it, so I trust you. You know what? I mean, that's what we do, right? That's where we go, just trusting him with what he's doing. And as David said, for my soul trusts in you. In verse 5, be exalted. O God, above the heavens, let your glory be above all the earth. This, this end of this first part of this psalm, ending the psalm in the same way in verse 11. But be exalted. The word exalted basically means to be high or to, to rise. And you know, we can't, if we're going to exalt the name of our Lord, if we're going to exalt our, our God most high, It's not like we can make him any higher than he actually is. 
To exalt him doesn't mean to make him high. He already is high. He can get no higher. They're, 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 he's as high as can be. But what we're saying is, Lord, I exalt you. I recognize, I understand, I agree that you are exalted above all things. That there is nothing, no other God, no thing, nothing, nothing created or whatever that can be as high as you. I'm exalting you. You are high above the earth. You are high above the heavens. And this idea of being exalted above the heavens would mean that even the angels who are there in heaven, even the host of heaven, the stars and the moon and the, and the sun, the galaxies of heaven exalt him because he is higher than even them. And of course, let your glory be above all the earth. Every living creature will acknowledge your glory. It's basically is what is being said there. May all creation on earth acknowledge that you are glorious above all things. In verse 6, we see these words. They have, now speaking again uh, of his enemies, they have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They've dug a pit before me. Into the midst of it, they themselves have fallen. Selah. And, and, and again, David writes, Selah. Think about this. God is such that he is able to confound our enemies in such a way that when they devise their plans for us, we don't fall into the trap. They are the ones that fall into the trap when they devise all these, these traps and make their plans against us. In previous Psalms, David has said this very thing. I think about the circumstances of my own salvation experience when I was converted. You know, um, just to make, a, make it a real quick story, basically, our adversary, the devil, and his demons lured me to Lake Tahoe to gamble. And I know for certain that it was his plan to bring me into a bondage to gambling. That's what he wanted to do. It could have happened, except that the Lord stepped in. While we were there, he met me. And you guys know that story. You know, we were playing cards, and my wife was beating me. I was upset with her. And, and we were drinking a bit, and I was, I, I was getting ugly with her, you know. And so I said something that was not nice at all. I have no idea. I don't remember what, she, what I said, but she left. You know, we were staying in a tent, but she went to the car to stay in the car by herself. And I went to the tent. And I'm laying there in the tent because previously, before we went, the Lord spoke to my heart, drawing me to himself. And I rejected him and said, Lord, not right now. No, not now. I've got some other things I want to do. I'm going to be 21 pretty soon. We're going to Lake Tahoe. I want to have some adult fun. No, not now. And so I, as I'm laying in that tent, thinking about these things, the Lord spoke to my heart as clear as, 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 as if it was one of you speaking to, to me in this room. But it was internal, but very clear. He said, so this is what you want. And that moment, I gave my heart to the Lord. And, 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 and I think it's a wonderful example of how God, and this is what David is writing about here, how, how God turns the enemy's strategies around on himself. He wanted to destroy me, but he led me to this place where God gave me his life. 
you know? That's what God does. It's amazing how God does that for us. And I think all of us have stories like that. In verses 7 to 10, we see a series of, of praises toward God. And, and, and David begins with, My heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise. My heart is steadfast. I love that. He's just saying, you know, my heart is not going to move. I am going to praise you regardless of what circumstance I find myself in. My heart is steadfast. And then he repeats it. Oh, Lord, my heart is steadfast. It ain't moving. I'm staying here. I'm going to worship you. My heart will not be moved. Even as the Apostle Paul in Acts 20, 24, when he wrote, or when he said to the Ephesian elders, as he's speaking about the dangers that are before him, he says, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And just like Jesus, who in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem when it was his time to be lifted up, as the first part of that verse says. David was that way. Are we? Charles Spurgeon said this, Believer, make a firm decree that your soul in all seasons shall magnify the Lord. Make a firm decree. By the way, guys, we do have control over those kinds of things. I can make a decree within my soul that I will worship and magnify the Lord no matter what. I can decide to do that. Have you decided to do that? And by the way, we've got to make that decision during our times of prayer and devotion as we're with the Lord in our prayer closet. Because the next day when we get out into the, into the battlefield, it's too late to make that decree. We lean on that decree. We follow that decree. But we don't make the decision then. We act on what we've already decided to do when we're in the battle. Verse 8, whatever, basically, we see these words, Awake, my glory, awake, lute and harp. I will awaken the dawn. And, and David is saying that whatever, um, whatever thing in me that might be somewhat noble, whatever glory might be inside of me, I am going to lay it at your feet. I am going to worship you. I'm going to bow down to you. I'm going to praise you. Awake, my glory and bow to the feet of the glory of God. See, that's basically what he is saying there. Um, and he says these praises are going to awake even the dawn. That's how early in the day I'm going to start singing these praises. I'm going to awaken the dawn. I'm going to cause the sun to rise. <laughs> I'm going to bring the light because I'm worshiping our God. In verse 9, I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations. Uh, 
Uh, just this aspect of as we live our lives in praise of our God, are we doing it even before the heathen that are out there? Everybody that's in the world, our neighbors, maybe our classmates at school, or maybe our, our uh, uh, work associates, or whatever it might be, our, our neighbors who find what we do kind of strange, not understanding the things of the Spirit because they don't have the Spirit. We understand that that's the case, and we're okay that they don't understand. We know that they don't, but they're going to see that I live my life to worship God. Are they seeing that? That's basically what that's saying. I will praise you, Lord, among the people. I will sing to you among the nations. Are we praising our God? Psalm 145, verses 10 to 12 says this. All your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Before the nations, before the peoples. Reminds us of what we read recently in Acts chapter 4, verse 20, when Peter and John said to the Jewish leaders, For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. That attitude. This is what we saw. This is what Jesus did. We're talking about it. You're not going to stop us. We can't help it. And we will not stop. Verse 10, for your mercy reaches into the heavens and your truth unto the clouds. We already quoted from Psalm 103 in regard to that expanse of God's mercy. I want to go to another passage, Isaiah chapter 54, verses 7 to 10. A beautiful passage from the pen of Isaiah. As the Lord speaks to his people, he speaks to us. Speaking specifically to Israel here through Isaiah, of course. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. For this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so I have I sworn that, would, that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has mercy on you. Beautiful passage that speaks of God's mercy, his covenant, it will never be removed from us, his people. Absolutely never. Isn't that wonderful? We can now take a huge sigh of relief. <sighs> Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. I am always in your mercy. It's never going to be removed. Oh, how we need it. But oh, how we already have it. What a wonderful thing. And then the psalm closes with verse 11, just a repetition of what we saw in verse 5. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, that your glory be above all the earth. And so, this psalm of praise. I pray that this psalm will be written upon each and every one of our hearts. That even as we find ourselves in the midst of difficulties in this world, as David found himself, 
He determined. He made his choice. He, his heart was steadfast. His soul was steadfast. I will praise the Lord. Will you? No matter what? We'll be tested. As we say, yes, I'm going to praise the Lord. He will test us. All of us are being tested to some degree right now. Some greater than others. But the test will come. Will we be true to that commitment? Thankfully, God, on a daily basis, gives us His mercies and His grace to enable us to do what we've committed ourselves to do. Might the Holy Spirit be with us. Might His power express uh, itself in each one of you as you make that commitment to praise God from your heart regardless of what's going on in your life. And Father, help us to do so. We do desire to praise you, to worship you at all times, regardless of what's going on. And Lord, might we be even as David who said, my heart is steadfast, oh God, my heart is steadfast, I will sing and give praise. And so, Lord, tonight we give you praise, thanking you for who you are, for what you've done, the reality of your presence in our lives, and the joy that you bring, even in the midst of the difficulties. It's amazing to me how you bring that joy in the midst of hardship, but you do. It's your presence in us, Lord. Thank you. Go before us now, Lord, we pray. Have your way in our hearts, we pray. Be praised honored and glorified, and we ask it in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together, guys. Chris is going to lead us in one final song and then dismiss us. Pray that you guys have a great evening. Uh, hang out, fellowship together, be a blessing to each other, and we'll see you next time we're together on Sunday. God bless you guys.